0: Adam was formed first, then Eve. And after forming Adam, God gave him a mission. For for chapter 2, verse 15 tells us, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. Adam had a mission, tend the garden, cultivate the garden. Chapter 2, verse 16 then tells us, Adam was also given a command. You shall not eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Adam not only had a mission, he had been given a command. He could obey this command and experience God's blessing, or he could disobey this command and experience the consequences. Adam had a purpose, tend the garden. And he had the opportunity to walk in obedience or disobedience. In addition, we know Adam is in intimate relationship with his maker. God is present with him. He's given him a mission. He's given him a command. It seems like he should be fulfilled and complete. Yet Genesis teaches this was not sufficient for Adam to thrive. For in verse 18, we read... The Lord God said, "It is not good that man should be alone." Even though Adam had a mission, even though Adam had a purpose, even though Adam was in—excuse in, me— even though Adam was in intimate relationship with his God, God pronounced it was not good. Adam needed someone to connect with. He needed someone to do life with. He needed human relationship. So God made Eve. And only after making Adam and Eve did God pronounce his creation to be very good. The the implications of this are significant for many areas of life. It's significant for how we view the family and how we view marriage as central to the family. It's significant for how we view gender and what it means to be male and female. And its implications are significant for how we view ourselves in relation to others. Is it okay for us to live in isolation? Or do we need community? Do we need relationships with others? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Paul Gardner and I serve as one of the pastors here. The past several weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we've been learning is that many of the things we experience in life, the way we experience pleasure, it's broken. The way we experience work, it's broken. Even disappointment. Pastor Chris awakened us to the reality that even the way we experience disappointment, it's broken. This week, we turn our attention to community. There is a way that many of us interact in community, it's broken. We do not experience community as God intended. So, in this passage, we'll examine this morning, we're going to observe three ways our experience of community is broken. Let's begin. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, We're going to be in the passage that was read earlier, and I'm going to open mine up and read straight from Scripture. Verses 7 through 8. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? this also is vanity and an unhappy business. The man described in this passage, he is all alone. Not because he has struggled to develop relationships with others, not because he has longed to be married or have kids and has been unable to do so. He is all alone because he has chosen to be all alone. In a culture that exalted family, he has not son nor brother, the things he had become about in life were accumulating wealth. And the teacher describes he lacks a moment of self-awakening when he realizes, what am I doing? I've been working for myself, and now I have no one to share life with, and I am miserable. Barbara Walters is, a, is an American journalist that is perhaps the most accomplished interviewer in her profession over the last 50 years. A couple years ago, as she approached retirement, the interviewer sat down to be interviewed. And she was asked the question if you could relive one moment in your life, the moment that brought you the greatest satisfaction or thrill, what moment would you want to relive? She said, I want to answer in a different way. I'm going to tell you what I regret. I regret not having more children. I would have loved to have a bigger family. I have one daughter. I don't have brothers and sisters. I had a sister whom I loved that was developmentally challenged. I wish I had a bigger family. The woman who had interviewed world leaders, star celebrities, championship athletes the woman who had traveled to some of the most special and unique places on earth, the individual who had actually struggled to bring babies into the world as she dealt with infertility and went through three miscarriages and was only able to be a mom by way of adoption, said the one thing she regretted, not choosing to have a bigger family. She recognized the end goal of pursuing career and fame at the expense of not choosing to have a bigger family. It was toil. It was meaningless, and she regretted it. The first way our experience of community is broken, we fail to reject exaltation of self. Rather than rightly understand who we are in relationship to others, we have too high a view of self. We believe we should be independent, we are individualistic, we don't need others. And this affects how we view much of life. If you think about the resources God has given you, how do you view them? Do you view them as a resource of the community? Or do you view resources as something that's yours? My time, my money, my emotional energy. Those things are mine rather than something that belongs to the rather than something that belongs to the community. I can do with it as I please because I'm important. I want you to thought, stop and think about how you view the resources God has given you. In particular, let's think about the last increase in income you experienced. Maybe it was a promotion, a new income opportunity, or a raise. How did you view those resources? Did you view how they benefit they would benefit the community you're a part of? Or did you primarily think how it would benefit you? Recently I realized how much exalting self had marked my thinking. My last raise, it, it certainly increased what Michelle and I were giving to the church. I mean 10% of course, that's that's the right thing to do. But as I thought about that increase in wages, my mind was far more fixed on how that income was going to improve my standard of living. Less stress about the grocery budget. Better opportunity to eat the type of things I wanted to eat, things like oatmeal cream pies and Twinkies. More money for vacations, more money for upkeep on our house. I I thought about how this increase in resources would expand my kingdom and exalt myself. I have little category for how resources are given to me to help others and serve God. This is one way we choose to live in isolation. In our cultural context, there are others. Let's discuss a few. One, American individualism. America is a very individualistic culture. This is the outcome of a nation birthed from rejecting a king to pursue individual goals like land and wealth. Now, don't worry, libertarians. This is not a sermon against private property. But there is a way that Americans think about individual goals disconnected from the life of a community that is concerning. Individual rights. Individual freedoms. Individual decisions. Individual choices. We exalt the individual in relation to their community and in relation to God. I am the master of my own fate. I determine who I am. I determine what I am. These things happen in isolation. I don't need others to tell me how to live. I don't need to embrace the reality that I live in a community and I'm dependent on them. I choose whatever I want to do with a complete disregard for how it may impact others. Number two, Protestant individualism. The concept of individual freedom was very much rooted in the movement away from the Roman Catholic Church. Martin Luther argued God was present in each individual believer and that individuals did not require a church-sanctioned representative to feel his glory, and more importantly, it did not require the church's blessing before one could enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we would not disagree with this. We do not need a priest to tell us our sins are forgiven. We do not need a priest to mediate grace to us. Pastors are certainly given to us to remind us and help us experience redemption, but we have one mediator, and his name is Jesus Christ. Yet, in our efforts to reject Roman Catholic doctrine, we often reject what it means to be Catholic in a positive sense. Many of us have this idea that First City Church is the be-all and end-all of local churches. And what it means to be Catholic in a positive sense is that there are beautiful expressions, beautiful expressions of God's body throughout the globe. In Korea, in, I don't know, Colorado, there's beautiful expressions of the local church, even in other parts of Bellevue. Right, first city church is not the ultimate expression of the local church, and we, uh, with this Protestant individualism, we also embrace the idea that my faith is personal. Right, it's personal conversion, uh, personal confession, personal faith. I don't need others. What I do is between me and God. It's Jesus and me, and we fail to see ourselves as members. Of a body. Instead, we embrace the idea that we're a bunch of little mini bodies running around. That maybe we maybe we can help each other a little bit. We are members of a body, and we need each other. Number three, white horse syndrome. This is probably a little bit of a less familiar term. Uh, something I came upon a few years ago in my own personal journey. It is something we need to talk about because I definitely believe it has an impact on many people in this room. I assume you're all familiar with the principle of the lone knight riding his white horse coming to the rescue of others. There are many of us, there are many of us who grew up in homes with parents who are either abusive, physically, emotionally, sexually, spiritually, or they were absent. Maybe they were physically absent, or maybe when we were experiencing pain and shame and disappointment, they were not there for us emotionally. When individuals grow up in such a home, they learn not to depend on others. They often have difficulty connecting. They struggle to let others in. They struggle to trust others. People like this, They often take on occupations like the pastorate or physical therapy. (laughs) They become police officers. They take on other healthcare professionals, or they enter the military. They do this because the one way they know how to connect with others is to play the savior, hence the name white horse syndrome. They like to ride on their white horse and rescue those who are hurting. They like to play the strong man, they protect, they love to help, and yet they live in isolation. They can't be weak. They can't trust others. They can't come down off that white horse, and so they are alone and isolated. It is not good that man should be alone. American individualism, Protestant individualism, white horse syndrome, each of them a different form of living alone. The teacher is telling us, living such a life, it is meaningless. Now, to dive a little deeper into the rabbit hole for how individualism infects us, I want to present you a few scenarios. And I I want you to think about what your counsel would be when you encounter someone in each of these situations. One, you have a friend struggling at work. They're struggling to be productive. They're struggling to produce a profit. And so he or she approaches you and they say, Hey, I'm having difficulty with this. What do you say? Perhaps you tell them, hey, you need to work a little harder, man. You need to pull up your bootstraps, buddy. Get tough. Two, you have another friend. He, he or she isn't very detail-oriented. He or she makes lots of mistakes. When it's time to gather as a small group, she forgot to put the food in the oven, and so she arrives with an uncooked dish. He's the guy who, in your GC who's kind of scattered even when he's there you wonder if he's really there right he's he's thinking about other things he's on his phone makes a lot of mistakes these friends are weak and this weakness it's annoying because it costs you time it takes away from getting where you want to go you see this individual make another mistake and fall again and they say hey can you can you can you give me some counsel here what do you say stop making mistakes be tough Figure it out. Three. Still another friend. This friend's suffering. He or she is in pain. He can barely keep it together. And this weakness, it's it's frustrating. What do you tell him? Stop complaining. Be tough-skinned. God won't give you more than you can handle. So be strong. Let's read the teacher's counsel. The teacher helps us remember what it means to be human, that we are dependent on others, that we were created to connect, and that it's not good that man should be alone. And so when the teacher encounters someone having trouble with work, he doesn't say, work harder, pull yourself together, get it done. No, he says, two are better than one. Find a partner, one who can help you work and be productive. When two work together, they support one another. They have a good reward for their toil. And to the one who's trouble falling, the teacher doesn't say, get back up. He's not like the coach, rub some dirt on it and get back in there. Don't fall down. The teacher says, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. We were created to help one another when we fall. Woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. And to the one who is cold, the one who is suffering, the teacher doesn't say, suck it up. Be tough-skinned. Stop whining. The teacher says, if two lie together, they keep warm. They help one another. This is how you and I were intended to live. We are dependent on one another. The teacher is helping us recapture a proper view of who we are in relation to others. And in that proper view, community is far more exalted than many of us believe it to be. This is the second reason our experience with community is broken. We fail to remember our need for community. It is not good that man should be alone. Two are better than one. Recapturing our humanity, we realize we are utterly dependent on others. In his essay, Two Contents, Two Realities, theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer proposes one of the four things that should mark the church is the beauty of human relationships. How we live in community with one another, how we demonstrate the reality that we are dependent on, this should mark the church. And from a missional standpoint, this is actually the first of the four that outsiders are going to notice. When people see the true beauty in human relationships in the church, it will make them stop and stare. He says, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, then in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth we proclaim. To Schaefer's point, what will people notice when they encounter such a community? Well, they'll see one another, support one another when they fall. People will be shocked by how they care for one another. During one of the worst storms in years, they will see people who are checking in on one another, like many of you did on Friday night and Saturday. They will say things like, Can I help you? And conversely, Because they are a people who recognize their dependency on others, they will invite others in into their own brokenness and pain. They will refuse to live in isolation. They will show others they are weak. They will let others help them. And so in addition to hearing them say, can I help you? They will say, will you help me? Will you help me? If I'm honest, I hate to utter those words sounds like such a plea of dependency, like, I can't do it, right? It seems so weak. When was the last time you said, will you help me? Some of you may not ever remember a time when you uttered those words. You're too strong. And those of you that do remember a time, I want you to think about how you said it. Did it expose you as weak and needy? Or did you say it in a way to preserve a perception of strength and to maintain dignity? Maybe it was more like, "Ham, hey, I might need your help. Would you be available? Because if you're not, I'm I'm fine." Or maybe the emphasis is on me rather than on vulnerability. I need your help rather than, "Will you help me?" Or maybe it's a half-hearted attempt to invite others in in making a decision. Hey, I'm I'm going to do this. I'm having this problem. I might change my mind if God closes the door. These are not professions of dependency. Will you help me? I'm having trouble with work. I've fallen again. Will you help me? It is a statement expressing we are needy. It is a proclamation of dependency and vulnerability. Many of you have taught me how to do this. Will you help me? I don't know how to fix something that's broken in my home. I don't want to ask for help, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't know how to love my wife. I often escape to things like Netflix or video games or pornography. I don't know how to repent. I don't know how to love my wife. Will you help me? My husband is really distant. He's recently confessed to looking at pornography. I'm so angry with him, and I feel so much shame. Will you help me? I'm feeling really anxious. The world feels like it's falling apart around me. I'm having difficulty holding it together. Will you help me? I get really angry, and I take it out on others. Will you help me? My wife and I are struggling to experience sexual intimacy in our marriage. Will you help us? I'm having difficulty connecting with others in my small group. I really am struggling to continue to be present. Will you help me? We need to be honest about something here. In many of our churches, in many of our homes, we don't like it when we're weak. And we don't like being around weak people. We'd much rather be around people who are holy and whole. We like people to be neat and clean. Sick and and sinful people, we want to deny that's us. We want to keep our distance from them. We don't want to carry the burdens of others. They weigh us down. And we don't want others to carry our burdens. By now, many of you have learned, one of my favorite authors is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You will often hear me quote from his book, Life Together, a book that describes the type of biblical community Christians should be striving for. I've got another one. The burden of men was so heavy for God himself that he had to endure the cross. God verily bore the burden of men in the body of Jesus Christ. He bore them. He bore our burdens. God took men upon himself and they weighted him to the ground. But God remained with them and they with God. In bearing with them, God maintained fellowship with them. It is the fellowship of the cross to experience the burden of the other. If one does not experience it, the fellowship he belongs to is not Christian. We struggle to be weak because we don't want to be a burden. Bonhoeffer says, a community that does not bear one another's burdens, it is not Christian. A bunch of tough-skinned people doing life together it is not a picture of biblical community. Rather, a Christian community, it is filled with weak people. A community that believes God has made them to be in community, they will have the freedom and the courage to say, will you help me? It is not good that man should be alone. Two are better than one. Now, before, before we believe the teacher has brought our attention to something bringing ultimate contentment and meaning, he has a little more to say. I mean, this is Ecclesiastes, after all. So let's pick up on v- verse 13. "'Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor.'" I saw the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. In some ways, these verses are kind of like a depressing song, like something Bob Dylan would say, or maybe Connor Oberst, You know, they're saying something, but it's kind of hard to figure exactly what. What do we learn from these verses? Well, we have a picture of two kings. There's one king who's old and foolish, and he wouldn't take advice from others. His leadership experience, his experience with community, it was certainly poor. Now, the second king, he's a younger king who takes advice, and he was popular, and he was famous, And then those who come after, over time, rather than rejoice in him, they reject him. What is the teacher saying? Bad experience with community? It's meaningless. Good experience with community? It's meaningless. Is the teacher being cynical? Well, yes. But the point is this. We do not gain ultimate meaning from our experience with community. How many of you have seen the movie The Truman Show? How many of you guys have seen that? I'm curious. Okay. Some of you who are younger, perhaps have not. Um, it, was, it was released in 1996, and I recently sat down to watch this with a, with a couple of my um, oldest daughters. And when the Paramount sign came up, you know the mountain with, uh, with the stars in a the semicircle? They were like, oh, this must be an old movie. <clears throat> I mean, it was 1996. Is that, is that really old now? You guys are going to have to help me please understand what's old. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, for those unfamiliar with the Truman Show, it's the story of Truman Burbank. Truman resides in the fictional setting of Seahaven Island, and and unbeknownst to him, his entire 30-ish years have played out on a true-life reality TV show. You see everyone living with him, his mother his father, his wife, even his best friend, they're all just actors and actresses. And there's cameras that secretly surround him and they're embedded in his bathroom mirror and in his car, they're directed at him in his office and they all broadcast a feed across the globe where individuals tune in. They tune in to see how Truman, right, the one true man, will respond to his father drowning how he'll respond with with how he navigates the difficulties of corporate America, how he'll respond when he engages with his neighbors, or to see how he experiences deep conversations with his buddy over a beer. And as the movie progresses, we, we see Truman awakening to the reality that the world that surrounds him, it is not his home. His awakening, of course, includes one individual who did connect with him, not as an actress, but as a human being. In his awakening, it includes a promised land, Fiji. Truman longs to travel there to experience true meaning and purpose. As we see him long to experience something different, the community around him, they work to persuade him to stay. Not to so much plead with him, but to emotionally manipulate him into believing that the fraudulent experiences of Sea Haven Island, that's where he finds meaning. And in the final scene, Truman is confronted by the creator of the show and, and the underlying question, will Truman continue to be defined by his experiences of community or will he be defined by something greater? Many of us exalt community too much, This is the third reason our experience of community is broken. We fail to reject an exaltation of community. We allow our experience with community to bring us ultimate meaning and fulfillment. Many of us here have had bad experiences with community that define us. Maybe there were people in our community that rejected us. Maybe they hurt us. Maybe they disappointed us. And we become more like the foolish king. We're surrounded by others, but we're isolated. We put walls up to protect ourselves. There are people who care about us and love us, and they're all around, but we don't want to let them in. We don't want them to know our weaknesses. We want to maintain safety and dignity rather than expose ourselves as vulnerable. We don't want to say, Will you help me? Or maybe because of a bad experience, rather than than maintain isolation, we seek to escape, we seek to run from a church, we look to find something different. Others of you, rather than bad experiences with community giving you meaning and purpose, good community gives you ultimate meaning and purpose. You're more prone to idolize particular experiences. You believe these experiences bring you ultimate comfort. You've had a particular experience with a small group or a particular experience with people, and it becomes the end you're after. So you cling to this community. You need to be in this type of community. And when you don't experience that type of community, when that type of community may be threatened, you disengage. You, you cling to it. You need to be in that type of community. And maybe you come to a point where God calls you away from the community you've grown to love. Maybe you come to a point where God calls its leaders to do something different. Maybe it's time for your small group to multiply or to experience significant changes. No way, no how. Is that happening? I'm clinging to this experience. I'm clinging to these people. I need to be in community with them because that experience gives me ultimate meaning and comfort and purpose. It is not good that man should be alone. Two are better than one. These are absolute biblical truths. At the same time, friends, your experience with community, it does not define you. It does not bring you ultimate meaning and purpose. Community is a beautiful God-given gift, but it is a beautiful gift that points to the giver of the gift. Every time you experience community, it points to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons living in perfect community with one another. It points to the creator of that community. Every Christian community points to the Savior who brings sinners like us into God's family. And it points to the Holy Spirit who miraculously unites believers in Christ into one community, one body. May First City Church be a place where we do live in rich community where we hear, where we see people depend on one another, where we hear them say, will you help me? And at the same time, may it be a place where meaning and purpose is not found in community, but in the one who made us and gave us community. Let's pray.